Um, well, that's good. I'll start with an um. I'm so good at uh, at etiquette. So Ryan Benson, welcome to the show. What What's state? Up? What state are you in? I am in the state of Ohio. Oh, what part? I am in Columbus. Do you know where Wooster Wooster is? Yes, I do. I grew up in Mansfield, so like Mansfield, Ohio, is where the Shawshank Redemption Reformatory is at. So, like, that's our little claim to fame, I guess you could say. Whatever. I, I had this little. Well, I hope if he hears this, he doesn't uh, take little as the only thing. But this, he was a little short guy. Uh, I had a roommate for a long time. He was a little uh, redheaded Irish straight punk kid uh <laughs> super alcoholic but he was from Wooster. okay um, so that's that's always what i think of when i when i think of ohio i may or may not have bought drugs in Wooster, ohio a couple of times <laughs> he was he was way into uh pos is that like you know the hip-hop guy it's like an underground hip-hop artist i guess he's from ohio maybe Okay. Ring any bells? It's like P dot O dot S. Oh yeah, he's uh he's on the Rhyme Sayers Collective. Yeah, he's in a hip hop collective called Doomtree. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I think he's from Ohio. I don't know if he is or not. He might be. Maybe he he's might. not. Maybe I just made that connection because my boy was. That's a ferret back there. Before yes. you, I see. I see it running around. A couple <laughs> of balls running around. So. Oh, nice. Yeah hell's going on right now <laughs> so it's good to quasi meet you in person uh i guess i'll set the the backstory so we i guess it was you know two years ago now yeah two years ago now uh there was a, a little thing called furnace fest that was gonna occur and they started a facebook group for it i guess back then it was only i don't know five or six months before the festival uh, the festival obviously didn't happen, so we've had a full uh, two ye- years. Yeah, it's only a year. Excuse me. It seems like it's been two years, dude. Good grief. <laughs> that, that COVID time travel, dude. <laughs> yeah. So we've been in this Facebook group for a year now, and at some point, I'm trying to remember when you co- how we linked up. It, I don't know who posted something about recovery first and then i was like oh shit okay and then it turns out there's there's quite a few people in recovery in that group um and then or that it may have been talking about what people did for a living and you said that you were going to be a counselor some i can't remember i don't know if you remember what exactly wow, to each other <laughs> <laughs> you 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 paying attention to the in the in the furnace fest group huh like oh yeah dude I think, I think that's how it it did start like i think you and i hit it like obviously we haven't had very many interactions on facebook but like that's what kicked it off was like okay cool there's some other people that are in recovery that are down for this furnace fest thing because it is it's become this whole thing it's it's really become a thing it's it's and it's what sucks is trying to explain it to people that have no idea what I'm talking about. 
Yeah. Yeah, because it, it really has. So the the y'all have heard me talk about it before, but the basic idea. So it's this festival that happened 21 years ago now, uh, which is basically how old are you? You're you're are you like 33, 34, 36, <laughs> 40? Uh, 41. <laughs> oh, okay. You wear it well. So yeah. I'm 34. So you're you're a little bit ahead of me, but for our generation when we were you know late high school early high school middle school all that stuff um back in the scene days as they call it with screamo and metalcore and stuff basically all these bands that we used to listen to back then are reuniting um playing our favorite albums and stuff in this one festival that it's it's our for our scene and our generation it's woodstock like it's that equivalent and so through this Facebook group, it's literally because I, I haven't really been able to find a group of friends. It's really like the people I used to hang out with in high school are in this group. And I haven't been able to find those people in like my little Lafayette, Louisiana or anywhere that I've been. You know what I'm saying? It's like, damn, these are all the people like the same sense it's it's interesting that we've all kind of grown up and having the same sensibilities the same sense of humor same movies same music it's a really interesting social experiment i have to agree i have to agree it's wild like you know we grew up in a smaller town so like where i was at in mansfield there was like a handful of people who even were like familiar with like let's say like poison the well or and that time period like the used or under oath like you know like nobody knew like these bands so when you find people that were into it like you had to go to the bigger thriving metropolises like cleveland or columbus or cincinnati to like find people that were into that vibe you know and then you know then hot topic comes around and then everybody's on the screamo train yeah in the, in the early pot in the early punk like the the new wave of punk whatever i'm sure there's some purists in the group that are gonna hear this and be like dude you you fucked it all the way up <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, did you ever work at a hot topic i did no hell dude no i did no. i a funny story i was over the weekend like I was in a hot topic. I was at the mall shopping, looking for Browns gear because I'm an avid Cleveland Browns fan and NFL football fan. And uh, I went into Hot Topic, and dude, they had Coheed and Cambria on the radio. So I was like, I was talking to the kids. They were working, and two of them didn't even know who they were. Oh, jeez! Like, Holy shit! The the scene has changed. Oh yeah, changed so it's... much dramatically dramatically change. or it's like if they do know coheed it's like from a recent song and it's just like it's mm -hmm. that was the best part about that job really why i got it because they would let us pick the music like they had like a nine cd disc changer and like each employee got to put in two of their cds and then it would just wrote on shuffle throughout the day so that was the best part about that job. It was just me and like everyone that in Columbia, South Carolina, which is where I was from, everyone in the local yeah. band scene just worked at Hot Topic. So it was just <laughs> it was just the place to be. Yeah, of course. But sure. uh, used to sell CDs too once upon a time. And now it's yeah, 
Yeah. Now they're, now they're back to selling like vinyl. It's everything's so weird. It's all full circle now. <laughs> um, but I wanted to get you on here to kind of hear about your recovery. The old, the old recovery story. The old, old recovery scene. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, how did you grow up? How did you get into the drug scene? Man, you know, like going back all the way to my early teens, I think, you know, and I, I've talked to a lot of people about this, but dude, it really started with smoking cigs. Like, you know, that, that sneaky vibe, getting one over on the parents, stealing cigarettes from people's packs. And, you know, I think that, 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 that whole, like that whole vibe, whatever you want to call it, like that rebellious streak started with smoking cigarettes as a, as a teenager. Do you remember and, your first cigarette? Dude, I was saying I was walking home from middle school and that was my first cigarette. I remember, I remember it. And like, it was funny too. Cause my, my dad was a, a wholesalesman and back in the day, like gas stations and in and out marts got their cigarettes from like wholesalers, which I think they still do. But like, that's how I started like stealing cigs was from like his like the stuff that his, he was supposed to be taking, uh, taking to uh gas stations and shit you know and like that's how that's how that started and then like dude like early on like i was never really the kid that ever really fit in with anybody like i had severe adjustment disorder from my family's from my mom and dad's like divorce so Mm. Yeah, I started to like, it started to like totally disconnect and I never found a group of people to really hang out with in middle school or being bullied in high school. Like, I, dude, I was the chubby kid in a small country town. Like, yeah. I moved, my family moved me there from the city and Mansfield was the that, city compared to the school that I ended up at. So it never that, fit in. That's a, that's an interesting childhood observation too is like back it seemed like back when we were kids there was only maybe three chubby kids you know what i mean it's like it it was not a ubiquitous thing and so it, it was like there was literally you had there was usually a kid with some kind of deformity maybe like an eye patch or like something you know what i'm saying something like that there yeah. was the freakishly tall one. There was the chubby kid. Maybe that's a small town thing, but I, I remember yeah. that. And it's it's like, you know, God forbid you were one of those because you were going to get the brunt of it was the easy pickings. Yes. Yes. You it, I totally, totally was. You know, like I was just never quite fit in, you know, and and like. 16 comes around you know age of 16 comes around and i'm starting to like you know i got my first job at bob evans you know which <laughs> i don't know how many of those are actually in the south but like not many a little further up into like what west virginia and ohio like bob evans is a big deal like great breakfast by by uh by all standards but uh i started working there and oddly enough like the the older high school kids or like the ones that were fresh out of high school, you know, they're listening to a different kind of music than I was accustomed to. And, uh, you know, I heard Metallica and Pantera and White Zombie because the football dip jocks listen to it. And like 
to this day, I still have like this deep, deep rooted resentment towards that kind of music, like because of the, the, the experience that I had in high school. Well, you know, I first like, I, I first delved into like, like the, the, the earlier, like hardcore and like, you know, like, like Snapcase and Orange Nine Millimeter. And like, that's when Clutch was like super, like starting to come on the scene. And then, but I heard Deftones for the first time on a cassette. That and was, I seven, yes. I saw seven words, bro. Changed my life. Like Deftones that, changed that, my life too. That was the song that took me to a different level. And then I go to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh for this summer summer program, like workshop thing for kids that are interested in going to the Art Institute for, for school. And like there were kids from all over the country. It was the first time I ever saw uh ICP t-shirt was summer 1996, you know, like first time I'd ever seen like Jinko jeans. And that remember that's when we were like cutting the seams at the bottom yes. so they put over our shoes and shit. Yes. Like, whole new world to me and i just like i jumped towards it and like did you have you know, any siblings i have a sister yeah i have a I have are a you sister. the oldest yes okay so you were yes. the trailblazer i was definitely the trailblazer i got went, i got grandfathered in from my older sister <laughs> it tends to happen that way yeah it tends to happen that way and you know like my dad tried true alcoholic my mom is a, a very codependent enabler type type vibe that I grew up. That's the kind of household that I grew up in. And then my stepdad came in and just ripped the rug out from everything. And he was uh, he was a little bit different, not a substance use disorder, but like PTSD from Vietnam and PTSD from oh, wow. father growing up. So, you know, that carries some of the same characteristics as like a substance. For sure. And. Um, so I started, you know, I, I smoked pot a couple of times. It was never really like I was just trying to fit in. Yeah. Like I just wanted Me to too. be accepted. And like I was that that kid that tried so hard but could never quite fit in because I hadn't developed any sort of identity for myself. Yeah. And as like as the years started to go by and I get out of high school and I you know, I turn 21 and I start going to the bars a lot and I'm going to concerts and, and shows. And like, then I started to like, my identity started to form. My sense of humor started to form, but it was, those were, those were based upon like drinking and, and smoking weed. Yeah. That's in a, I, I wonder if there's, I mean, I guess you could say it for any social group too, but that, that was why I was, very much kind of a social chameleon where like I had popular friends, I had band friends, I had uh, nerdy friends, I had all these different friend groups, but I really didn't necessarily have my own thing. And for some reason, when I got into going to shows, that was going to be my thing. And like the scene or whatever, that was my thing. Um, and I really latched on to it because I guess that's where I found too. I, I also like, I wanted to go to, um, I was trying to go to Savannah college of art and design. And so I was kind of that, the, the, that music scene is where you would typically find a lot of like creatives and like drama kids and painters and like, you know, emo fucks as they would call them these days. 
<laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. I, th- I think our, you, know, you are a few years behind me, but like, you know, like that's, these are the generations that we grew up in, man. Like, you know, like, like when I, in 2002, when I went to, I, I went to this uh, glass draw show in Cleveland, Ohio, and they had like Blood Brothers with them, um, American Nightmare. Oh, nice. And this little unknown band at the time that was just starting to come on the scene by the name of Coheed and Cambria. Yeah. And uh, that's when I noticed the scenes were changing. That's when I knew, like, like there were kids that weren't smoking pot. There was, like, I had never really experienced straight edge or anything of that nature. And, you know, we're up there trying to get people to smoke pot. Nobody smoked pot. Nobody really drank. Except for Cody and Cambria, Cambria, because like we met them like buying forties of steel reserves in the gas station next to the Agora in Cleveland, and that was a weird experience. And it started an entire. Had I known like the course that the direction that my life would take after that chance meeting in two thousand two, like leapfrogging now to twenty twenty one, like it just blows my mind. Oh, there's so many of those. There's so many of those. It's just a quick aside, but didn't the bassist from Coheed rob a pharmacy before a show? Mm-hmm. That is, and that is the most gangster yeah. story I've ever heard of. Like, so I, I'm whatever. I'll fudge the details, but the gist of the story was they were playing at some arena, and before they played, the bassist went next door and robbed a pharmacy, and then like went back and played. Mm-hmm. so gangster dude mm-hmm. i so uh, along the straight edge things so i had already oh god from like pretty much from the first time i started doing drugs besides weed i started like uh, i started going overboard so i had been uh, pretty much forced into recovery since i was 15 i think was when I went to my first NA meeting. And mm. so, which was regrettable, you know, you're not like, I, I'm <laughs> regrettable. All right. I did not under, you know, talk about diving in the deep end when I really didn't know much about anything, but I remember like, Oh, because the, the, the struggle of trying to get sober as um a young person is nobody your age is trying to do that and then i found this group called straight edge and it's like wait a minute y'all are cool and you're not doing drugs on purpose and that's like a hallmark of your scene so i was like i'm gonna try that except i never quit smoking cigarettes but that's a different story i was like you know i'm kind of kind of straight edge no second partial yeah but so what happened after the the chance meeting with kohi well like the the budding friendship started you know i was i was a i was dude i was a full-time alcoholic and um yeah she's frankie's losing her mind right now oh you're you're good i don't know what's going on with her but um like Dude, I just started to dive into the bar scene. I started to dive into like cocaine, meth, you know, like as we tend to do, mm-hmm. you know, I, I discovered these things 
and I was just floating, man. I was working random jobs. Like I wasn't able to support myself. I was flopping from one place to the next. I had my own place, lost my own place. And then I like in 02, 03, like is when I started to like, I was like dating, I was dating somebody and we were really deep into like ecstasy and stuff like that, which is odd because my first experience of falling in love with somebody was at the at the end of a ecstasy high. So oh absolutely. You know, That'll like, do it. Those feel great. Those those highs are the best for falling in love, right? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And you know how many girlfriends my thing was uh tripping on mushrooms or acid. I would I would trip with a girl and think this happened three times where oh my god it's so transcendent we're like two conjoined souls and then I, you know three years later i'm stuck in this toxic ass relationship with a basis of psychedelic drugs like not a good not a good idea yeah it, it happens <laughs> yeah it, it, happens, does. it, it does. happened to me and like i just i was swimming man like I was partying, going to shows, like met every band I ever wanted to meet, hung out with people. I had this friendship that was beginning with Coheed and like, they go like, I mean, it was fun. I had some good times. I'm not, oh, yeah. not going to lie. Like I, you know, like I don't regret the things that I've done and, and I'll never, you know, like the, the adage says, you know, like I'm not going to shut the door on my past. Like there was some fun. And then when it became a, a, a habit of like drinking at nine o'clock in the morning and getting drunk, passing out in the afternoon and then going to the bar and getting drunk for the rest of the night. Like that's when like, like it took hold for me when I was drinking and partying every single day. Like there were no days off for me. I didn't take a day off from drinking and getting high. I take plenty of time, days off from work and responsibilities. And I was running. Constantly running from whatever, from one party to the next. And, you know, like, life happened. My 20s happened. Uh, I, I met what, who I thought was the, the love of my life at the time. And this is, like, when, like, my opiate addiction was kicking off in 05 and 06 and, and all the way through 2011, you know? Like, that was... How did you, uh, how, how did the opiates start? dude they started as pills at a factory job mm. i started taking perks to help me get through the 12-hour shift like my supervisor was super into that vibe and so i became super part of that thing and it was great for a little while and then the first time that i experienced withdrawals and the uncomfortability i was like okay i gotta have some more yeah and you know at that point like i'm eating Adderall like it's going out of style and that helps with the work shifts and <sighs> dude I was I was fully developing into a full-on narcotics addiction the only wanted opiates only wanted pills um I swore up and down that I'd never do heroin and that comes along later in my story but like I was just eating pills drinking all the time doing speed getting eight ball coke on the weekends on Friday night and probably Saturday night too, but just a party lifestyle, man. It was mm -hmm. fun. My 20s were fun. There's a lot of good times and a lot of bad times and a lot of bad memories, but there was a lot of fun too.
And like in that time period, like I lost my dad to alcoholism, like, mm. you know, three, he passed away from cirrhosis of the liver. And that's that in itself, like should have been a wake up call because that's probably one of the worst deaths I've ever experienced in my life. And I wasn't mm. really there for him in the end. So there's some regrets there. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's wild to like even go back. Cause I haven't given a lead in a little while. <laughs> so yeah. It's wild to kind of go back to it through the, through the annals of time with you right now, I guess. You yeah, could say. I know. And, uh, you know, Oh nine, I, I, I kind of tripped and fell into the Suboxone program. Yeah. And that became like, that was the first time my mom had kind of found out that I had a substance thing going on. At the time, I was going to my doctor to get prescribed Adderall and thinking I was going to hustle some stuff. And, like, he drug tested me because he thought I, he could tell I was drug seeking. The only thing I had in my system was Suboxone. And that's because that was all I could get for the last couple of weeks. Like, my regular pill connect was out. Right. So, like, I was getting Suboxone from my other buddy. And he's like, Well, obviously, you're trying to stay clean, but you're not doing it the right way. Like, why don't you come into the Suboxone program and, you know, we'll get you started with some sort of counseling and help, help you get sober. Well, the first couple of years I did really well. I was still drinking, but I wasn't like doing everything else. I, I was at that, that level, that concept of sober. Sure. And, you know, Suboxone became another addiction for me. Yeah. Um, I was lying to my doctor to keep my, my, my prescription level up. What what um, what uh what dose were you maintaining at? I'm 32 milligrams a day. Yeah, that's what I was on for two and a half years. That Ooh. is that is such an outrageous dose. It is. It is outrageous. It is. And like, and like, it, it, it's it's wild too, because like, you know. Yeah, I I had gotten out of this relationship with this person that I thought was my like my soulmate. We were engaged and like she left me and, you know, I was a walking, talking existential nightmare, so to speak. And, uh, you know, then in 2011, like basalts came out and that became. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. All of 2011 was like. That was the year that everything came crumbling down. Did you did you ever get into shooting bath salts? I know. Ne- well, dude, it's funny. I didn't start using intravenously until 2012. Be so so I so this is how like I remember bath salts. Luckily in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it seemed like they just kind of came and went in about a year and a half period is when is when we were all using them and same with uh like spice and mojo like when spice and mojo you know yeah you, you know what i'm talking about yes yeah oh yeah like oh, first yeah. first generate and that's so uh, the people that don't that's the uh synthetic marijuana is what they call it so the first generation cool. yeah the, the first generation was actually really decent and so what happened was Congress passed something called the analog law, which meant that all analogs of a substance are banned. And so what they would do, because what chemists were doing was 
say the chemical was like JWH1, they would just make JWH2 and then JWH3. And so you have Mm -hmm. nine generations of this chemical. And so by the end of it, that's where you get now the synthetic weed that the last time I heard about someone using it, he like when I watched him do it, it literally looked like he had just shot up heroin. Like he straight nodded out drooling whole thing. I don't know Mm. what the hell it is now. But the bath salts, I remember going over to my friend. Uh, well, I was about to say his name, but I went over to my friend's house and he just had this. He's like, dude, I just got this shit from the gas station, dude. It is legal. And he is just I'm talking back to back to back, just like every five minutes, just slamming it in the arm. And I'm just like, uh, because uh, it for some reason it like the compulsion to redose on that stuff was so strong. It was, it was awful, awful shit. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was bad. Like I had kind of the same experience. Like uh, my, uh, my good friend, he's like, I went over to his house and I hadn't even really heard of it yet, but I had heard of it, but I hadn't heard of it. Right, that right. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, he's like, try this. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's whatever. And then like three hours goes by and like, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I got to run to the gas station on my way home. And like, then it became like the whole March, 2011 through, through, through October, 2011 was just, it was a blur. I got arrested for the first time, like high on basalts, like followed me for a half an hour. Like they used my videotape and, and court to like deter people from using basalts and shit like my man you know like that was my claim to fame right you know at the time like you know they wanted to take my license and like like they took all my suboxone and it was like and i'm detoxing in the jail cell and like coming down i slept for like three of the five days i was in there because i had been up for a week at least lost a shit ton of weight like, and I'm a big dude. I'm six foot three, like 298 pounds. Well, I'm a little bit over that right now, but I'm not trying to talk about that on a podcast because, you know, COVID weight, right? <laughs> and yeah, uh, of course, I'm a of big course. Dude, but I, dude, I dropped down to like 240 pounds. That is dude. tiny, unhealthy, unhealthy, unhealthy. And, um, you know, I lost my job in that time period, I lost my insurance. So my doctor's like, well, we need to keep you on your Suboxone. So put me on Subutex, which is Suboxone without the blocker. And I had something that everybody wanted at that point because they could still still shoot it and dope and Subutex at the same time. So like I started my life like I, I I lost my job. I didn't go back to work. My mom started paying my rent. Like I was lying to her and hustling her. And like I I she all she, all this time, like she thought her son was just struggling to like find a job and get his life back together. And all I was doing was selling my pills to get whatever I could get my hands on. And like oh, our story is remarkable. That was how that was how the two years of my life when I like called my parents, I was like, I don't need your money anymore. I'm self-sufficient. And the reason was my doctor had prescribed me 32 milligrams of subs, 90 milligrams of Adderall and eight milligrams of Xanax per day. 
so I was just selling my scripts and I, it was, that was just how I was supporting myself. And that, that started the worst, the worst year of my life. The drug king pen, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Rolling dude. Yeah. I had a, oh, I had, yeah, I had sure. a dude, I had a dude with lung cancer that would buy, Oh God, like 120 of my subs every month for $25 a piece oh shit okay yeah it was it was yeah i hope that dude's okay (laughs) i hope so too i hope so he was a nice guy and like you know like everybody was gone like i was had gone into complete isolation um my ex that had split up with me like we had started talking a little bit here and there and uh you know i started to fall in with a different group of people like all my regular friends uh, either disappeared or were still going to the bars and I didn't have a license. And I was one of those guys that was always scared to get pulled over. Mm-hmm. So I'd only drive during the daytime. My tags were expired, no insurance, no license, only driving during the daytime didn't lend itself to having a nightlife. So I was home every night and, and like things really started to spiral. And that's, that's when I started picking up the needle. Like I'd never shot dope a day in my life. Never shot, never put a, a needle in my arm for anything. And I started hanging out with this one person and she was an intravenous drug user. And I started to fall in love with the needle. Like, do you, oh, man, do you remember the first time? I do remember the first time. I do remember the first time. And I remember not getting much off of it because I was on Subutex. But like, then I started to fall into it and like yeah. I found people that were able to get tar this was yeah. before fentanyl came on the scene. So like we we're getting black tar and like powder and like the real, like whatever real deal stuff there was. And, and yeah. you know, nine years ago and it took me back, out back when it was actually heroin. Quick. It took me out quick by from, from November t- 2012 to March, 2013 or 14 everything started to fall apart, man. You know, like I was that dude that got, you know, we get the abscesses cause our veins can't break that shit down. And like, yeah. I didn't go to the hospital. I would Lance and drain them myself and just go yep. about my way. And like, eventually like, you know, Christmas, 2013, I went home to my mom's house for the holiday and I've been up on Vivans and Adderall for, you know, a few days. And by that time, like, after abusing stimulants for so long, our nervous system starts to break down. So like, you know, I'm popping and clicking my mouth a lot. I'm talking yeah. to myself. I'm toe tapping yeah. almost constantly, even when I wasn't high. And uh, I went home for Christmas that year. And I was like, my mom couldn't figure out what was wrong with her son. Uh, and I was uh, high like, the whole time I was there. My family saw everything. Like I started to develop this lower back pain. And like it was excruciatingly bad. We thought like maybe I tweaked my back or like I, I I messed up my sciatica. So like, you know, I spent days and days in bed and like I could only get out to like go to the pharmacy and get my subutex or go to the Adderall hookup and get that, get that taken care of. And like, you know, on March 2014, March 3rd, March 4th, um, you know, I woke up. And I tried to get out of bed and I couldn't walk anymore, dude. Oh, God. I was in ex- 
unbearable amount of pain. I fell to the floor. Like I couldn't piss, couldn't shit. I couldn't squeeze a dribble of piss out to save my life. Like can you imagine being trapped and having to pee and not being able oh, yeah. to pee? Oh yeah. I've been there. Yeah. yeah. I've been there. And I, you know, like, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I remember like, a nurse, a nurse like screaming at me because it's like, dude, I swear to God, I swear nurses sometimes have no idea how drugs work because you know, when you're high on dope, you can't piss. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had, it was one of my many overdoses and they're like, we can't let you go until you do a urine sample. And I'm, I'm like, lady, I cannot pee like physically impossible, dude. It is not going to happen anyway. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I was trapped on my floor, dude. I couldn't get back to my bed. I couldn't get to my phone. I was in so much pain. My legs weren't working. So like I, dude, it took me like three and a half hours, four hours to crawl, like army crawl to get to my cell phone. And like, you know, I lived in a third floor apartment. It's March. There's six inches of snow on the ground. The door's locked to my apartment. I call 911. Like, at that point, like, there was no option. Like, I was the type of dude that would get back in bed, eat a subutex, and sleep it off, thinking it was going to eventually work itself out. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it'll be all right. Yeah, it'll be okay. I'll be fine. And this wasn't the case. You know, so the squad comes. And they had to call my landlord to get into my apartment. It was the first time anybody had been in my apartment in over a, almost a, over a year. So, like, they saw the, 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 the level of just decrepit disgustingness that I was living in, the filth that yeah. I was living in. My life had become a bed bug infested apartment. Yeah. And they come in and get me. They had to use the net to pull me out with because they couldn't put me on like a gurney. I was in too much pain. So they took me to Mansfield Med Central and I'm laying in the emergency room just screaming. I can remember screaming at the top of my lungs. I was in pain and like they weren't giving me anything until they could talk to my Suboxone doctor. Oh, God. And, um, yeah. And uh, obviously like at that point, they're putting me in like an MRI tube. I wouldn't lay still on the MRI tube. So they loaded me full of drugs and sent me in the back of a squad car uh, in the back of an ambulance to Columbus, Ohio. And March 5th, 2014 was the day I moved to Columbus, Ohio in the back of an ambulance. And uh, they put me in the ICU that night. I woke up the next day to the to the neurologist standing over top of me and like, excuse me suited and booted rock star bro pinstripe suit shaved head like super cool cat and he looked at me he's like first off i know you're a junkie and i'm like wow great bedside manner i, didn't, yeah. I remember saying that to him my mom's sitting there crying not knowing what's going on with her son and i they had done mris they drugged me out so bad that i didn't even know they had done mris and they found an abscess had formed on my spinal cord. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, osteomyelitis. Okay. It was so big. How did that happen? Seven vertebrae. Well, here we go. The moral of the story is, is if you're an IV drug user and you get abscesses, you need to go to the hospital and get antibiotics. Uh, if you don't... The infection backs into your bloodstream and you turn septic. Well, an yep. infection had formed on my spinal cord. 
which is very common with intravenous drug users. And it's becoming more and more of a thing now that we're seeing like most people in hospitals after an overdose or form infection on their, you know, in their hip, their back, their hand or yeah. heart, the heart infections, heart valve infections. Um, so fractured seven vertebrae. Holy shit. Paralyzed me from the waist down. Like I couldn't use my legs, catheter, all, all the whole nine. And he said, well, you know, you're probably never going to walk again. He said, you be in a wheelchair. You can either get clean and sober or you can continue doing what you're doing and die an addict. And uh, he said, oh, I'm going to go in and I'm going to clean out your spine. I'm going to put pins and screws in your spinal cord. Hopefully that'll heal. Um, they did surgery like two days later. Dude, I was dying. I was dying. I was inches from death. And, you know, six weeks later, I'm in a physical therapy facility. I'm up taking my first steps, bro. Man. And it was that moment. It was that moment that I realized, like, I got to do something. Like, my mom had went in and cleaned out my apartment and found all my syringes. And oh. I saved every single empty Adderall capsule for, like, two years. So I had this huge mound in a bowl. Right. Oh, why do yeah, we do dude. shit like that? Yeah. But that <laughs> I was a hoarder. We have I weird collections. Adderall capsules and losing yeah. rub-off lottery tickets, dude. Jeez. And, you know, she found my porn collection. I'm like 34 years old. My mom's still my porn. <laughs> about, you know, like, <laughs> oh, God. Everything away. She's like, get that shit out of here. And, uh, <laughs> dude, mine, my, I had to, uh, and Miriam, if you listen to this one, I'm sorry. Again, I'm sorry. But I meant well. I knew I was going to rehab one time. And so I went through my, this is when I was still living with my parents. One of the first times. And so I went through my room and collected all my syringes, all my spoons, all my baggies. And I put it in the center of the room and I threw a towel over it and I was going to come throw it away. Well, I overdosed or something and went to the hospital and I had to go straight from the hospital. So my mom happened upon the towel I meant so that she didn't have to do that, but she found mm-hmm. everything. I'm so sorry, mom. Yeah, <laughs> my, my mom, uh, she cut me. Like at that point, she was like, "You're gonna have to figure it out. You're not going home for a while. You're gonna be in Columbus. Like, what your what's your next step?" Well, you know, we have family friends. Like, um, my, my my mom's sister is very very much so into the church very very religious so she kind of stepped in at that point and myself i wasn't a very religious guy like i grew up in a house where church was used as a safety net to save my alcoholic father Mm. figured if he'd go to church he'd quit drinking that right that's awfully harsh thing to say and that is my perception of it um and i'm sure that it was much different than that uh it was my mom trying to add substance to our lives. And uh, my aunt stepped in. She, she, we had a family friend who was very familiar with this treatment program in Columbus, Ohio, called House of Hope. Oh, yeah, I've heard a, of that. A very renowned treatment program in the state of Ohio. Like, you know, they only have 20 beds. Well, when I was there, they only had 20 beds. I, I think they've increased the amount that they're they're able to provide now. And it's like... Six month intensive treatment. You're living in the 
this Victorian style home and like this little uh, part of Columbus called Victorian Village, which is like, like eight minutes from the Horseshoe, which is where the Ohio State Buckeyes play. And it's like in this real nice little area. So like, you know, I, I started to really think about it and like that name just stuck out to me and the fact that it was long term. I was going to have some place to stay for six months while I figure it out. I didn't have insurance. I didn't have any money. Like it's for people without insurance. And, uh, you know, I get out of physical therapy. I, I'm walking with a walker and like, you know, the, I never thought I was going to walk again, bro. So I, I, I get transferred to this, this, this nursing home to finish my physical therapy. And like, dude, this place scared the shit out of me. Like I called my mom crying. Like, you got to get me out of here. Take me home. All I wanted to do was go home. And she's like, you know, that's not going to happen. You're going to have to figure it out. And I started to probably uh, the hardest thing your mom had to do. Oh, God bless her dude god if bless mom you know she probably saved my life in that moment because had mm. she brought me back home i probably would not be sober today for sure and a lot of gratitude for that a lot of gratitude for that hard hard love you know that 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 tough love and you know so i started the application process for house of hope and i got an assessment lined up and like you know they start testing your willingness from day one like you call and set up the assessment. Uh, they brought me in for the assessment, like the nursing home transported me there. And like, and like, it's funny, dude, I play fantasy football with a guy, the very first guy I ever shook hands with say like back in 2014 at the house of hope. Like he was, it was on a weekend. We tried to visit there and, and like he shook my hand and like, I play fantasy football with this dude today. That's awesome. Today, like I, I, yeah. seven years later, you know, it's, yeah. it's so wild. It's so wild. And like, you know, I, I, they weren't going to take me at first because I'd never been through actual treatment before. This is like, they call it the last house on the block for a reason. This is people that have been treatment multiple times and failed multiple times. Okay. And God, dude, my higher power at that point was looking out for me and doing something for me that I couldn't do for myself. Cause I got the phone call like two weeks later after the medical director got back or the, the program director got back from vacation. They're like, we're going to take you, but you got to be able to walk a mile on your own and get up and downstairs. So they do this in July, 2014. And at that point, like I started walking up and down the hallways and like, you know, I'm, I'm off like June 8th, 2014 is my sobriety date. So I got off a of, officially off the Suboxone and everything on June eighth, two thousand and fourteen. That was that is my clean date, a hundred percent. And so I spent like the next few weeks walking further and further, and like developing like the ability to walk up and down stairs because I really wanted to go to treatment bad. Like I was like, I'm gonna go to treatment in Columbus, Ohio. Dude, my life is going to change. Like I was excited for it because I was so yeah. starved for positivity. So starved for friendships. So starved for like any kind of semblance of a life that I was just ready to go. Like I had surrendered before surrender was even a concept in my mind. And, you know, you had to call every week to check in to see if you're, you know, if you, your name, your, where your name's at on the list and like the list finally got to me september it was like september 9th or 10th 
actually this is right around now is when I went into the house of hope, they called me and said, we were, your bed's ready. We need you to be here tomorrow and ready to go. And like that day I walked into that, into that program, you know, it, it really started to change my life. I went to my first meeting that first night there, we went to meetings seven nights a week, you know, and, and like, I, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. It was a lifelong thing. Had no idea about character defects, about ego, about any of that stuff. Not a single solitary. Shit, if, if you did, you wouldn't have done it. Yeah, exactly. Like my best thing. <laughs> got me here, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I get two months into the six month program and the pain in my back is so excruciatingly unbearable that they took me back to the hospital because I was starting to like get numbness in my legs and like took me to the same hospital. My original surgery was at they did MRIs and the infection had come back. And the same surgeon from the first time did my second surgery. And at that point I had a couple of steps under my belt. I was through the third step. I was getting ready to start the fourth step, you know, like my sponsors in my life, like, I was like dead set against. I'm like, you're not giving me any painkillers. I'm gonna do this with aspirin and Tylenol and and well, aspirin and Tylenol are the same damn thing, but Tylenol and ibuprofen, and I'm gonna be just fine. And like the surgeon's like, dude, he's like, the infection's back in your spine, but your spine is healed. So we're gonna take the steel out. Like that was what allowed the infection to come back, was having that foreign body. Uh... And uh He's like, with what I'm about to do to your spine, you're going to need pain medication. But he's like, I'm going to do you one better. He's like, rarely, if ever, any of these surgeries that I do, I, I, I never see people come back sober. I usually generally hear like they come back dead or worse off than the original one. And uh, kind of waved his fees, dude. Oh, wow. And like, I, like that was that was a big thing man like he really was proud of the work that i was putting in and like i was just getting my feet wet and like a real recovery you know like i was sober for a little while before i went to treatment and then i go to treatment and it's like i started to build friendships i started to like i i learned that i was a one-upper and i was always telling all these stories about my past to these guys in treatment to make myself sound cool so like i could make friends and like they didn't give a shit what I did yesterday. They right. give a shit what I did 10 years ago. They give a shit about who I am today and what I'm doing for myself today to 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 be better tomorrow. And I had never like experienced anybody that just genuinely the first time I ever told another dude I loved him was like my brothers in treatment, you know? Like I yeah. never told another guy I loved him and <sighs> So they did the other surgery and I was back in the nursing home. I was back to square one, learning how to walk again. And, you know, that whole, that whole experience in the nursing home was like, you know, they perks for the first week, two weeks. And then I was on like, I was on methadone for like three weeks after that. And then I was off of it. So for like five weeks total, I was on painkillers. I was in a controlled environment. A sponsor was involved. Like the treatment yeah, program. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah, the treatment yeah. program, I was the first outpatient client that they had. They, they started to do outpatient services for clients that, like, were in treatment and had to leave for, like, medical reasons. Like, normally they just discharge you. Well, they, like, 
the counselor kept showing up every other week. My case manager kept showing up. Like they were involved in every step of the way. Um, I got through majority of my steps while I was in the nursing home. I had a pass every day for three hours to go to a meeting. And I had dudes from the house picking me up, taking me to meetings. Like, dude, they didn't have to pick this big 385-pound dude up in a wheelchair with a plastic bulletproof vest on and take him to a meeting in the middle of winter time. <laughs> yeah, That's I know. What we do. That's what we do. And, like, you know, I got out April 2015. I got out of the nursing home. Um, I wasn't going to be able to go to Sober Living for the House of Hope program, but I found a Sober Living house that was accepting people like literally the same day I was getting out and like, you know, I kind of had some financial backing to get me set up and they just sober house took a chance on me, like knowing that I wasn't going to be able to work for a while. And that was part of the stipulations of living there. And, you know, my one year hit and the, the owner of this sober living house, this program was opening a treatment center here in Columbus, Ohio called Ohio addiction recovery center and he hired me. He asked me to be a, a behavioral health technician for him. So, you know, September 2015, I started my my journey into working in treatment. Um, I didn't have I never had a bank account. Like summer 2015, I go to my first sober concert, which oddly enough was Incubus and Deftones. <laughs> that summer tour. Like I had like Full buddies of mine in AA took me to my first sober concert. I dude best experience of my entire life and like one of the top 10 experiences in recovery and like life started to get better okay yeah i I had a job like my mom sold me her car like my relationship started to get better with my mom like doing that ninth step amends with my mom bro when you all you see is the look of sheer utter like disappointment and her questioning herself like where she went wrong with her son and just like that's the worst the deflated look that our parents get or our loved ones get when we're in the in the in the mix of it but doing that ninth step amends with her sitting there and owning my shit and cleaning my side of the street i started to see the glimmer of hope in her eyes for the first time you know her 34 year old son 35 year old son is like finally starting to grow up a little bit and become like uh, an individual in recovery, become a man, so to speak, and starting to learn an identity. And uh, yeah, dude, you know, life progressively got better in those first two years. Like had a car, a bank account, money, friends, going to concerts and like Coheed became a thing again. And like I was going, I've been traveling to shows and, you know, this is all a result of the 12 step program for me, man. So with, we got a little bit left. So what, how, how is like, how, how is life like today for you? Life today? Um, <clears throat> post COVID. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty good, man. I, I have a, I, I'm a counselor now um, looking at going to college here soon. Like, yes, I've been sober seven years now and like life was a little bit different for me for a little while being the, the job that I had prior to the one that I have now with with high life recovery 
is uh, it was a little bit different. And High Life brought me in. It was a very damaged individual from my original job. And they've been loving and caring and helped help build and mold me into uh, we're yeah. you know we're growing we're, we're and, ha- working I, I found so that was actually i do want to want to spend some time on this that was you know it, it seems like when everybody gets sober everybody wants to be a counselor right and then everybody tries to be a counselor and the burnout rate is ridiculous and very few, especially males. There are very few male counselors in recovery, right? It's just the industry chews you up, spits you out. It's a thankless job. People die. People cuss you out. They're shitty. You're dealing with people's stuff day in day out you also have to worry about your own stuff which oftentimes takes a back seat and Mm -hmm. i you know i get the feeling that you're like me where it's like i've seen a lot of counselors at at times like they just treat it like a job and they're just clocking in and clocking out they don't give a shit i don't operate that way like i care and i care like i i take my responsibility very seriously and which which really hurts sometimes and it's really hard sometimes so how has the experience been for you and how how do you stay sane um so i am very blessed in the fact that the program that i work for um is very um employee because it's two things clients and employees and in order for the uh the the clinicians and the service providers to provide quality services to our clients them the 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 clinicians are are treated very very well We're, we're treated with a lot of respect uh, the education is there. We're 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 a young group of clinicians. Um, so a couple of us have only been counseling for a little less than I'm just over a year being counseling of counseling, and they stress self care. Um, there's an open line of communication with our clinical coordinator, who's a very you know become a pretty good friend of mine since I started working there, and I, I knew him. He's House of Hope alumni. Knew him prior to working there. Um, I got the job as a result of relationships in their rooms. Um, and uh, they, they really stress self-care, working a program, um, talk therapy for us. Uh, I still speak with a therapist from time to time, not as frequently as I used to, or more like, you know, when, when shit's on fire, I talk to him. Um, right. You know, meetings are could be a little bit better for me i do tend to slide on that quite a bit so that's me holding myself accountable right now and uh zoom has been really nice for meetings because i can be laying on a couch in my underwear and be in an aa meeting and not have to worry about right <laughs> what i look like you right. know what I mean? from the neck up it's all good bro absolutely <laughs> and uh but yeah like they're they're all about us taking off time if we need it like if if like I'm at this like kind of like burnout, September depression, they kind of this bullshit time of the year for me right now and stuff's like super heavy. It's been a while. 
since I've taken any significant amount of time off since the, like the furnace fest get together in Florida back in May. So like I, I was able to communicate that I'm kind of burned out and like, you know, they're like, well, well, you know, you've got vacation coming up in two weeks for furnace fest. And, you know, we just had a holiday weekend. Like let's do what we can to get through it, go on vacation, have a great time, come back, rest. They're not so much as rested, but ready to go. Like, I'm going to, we're going to be in our element for four days, man. Like, our fucking scene, bro. So it's like, we get to go be a part of that. And I don't know. Like, I work with outpatient clients. So they're only really a part of my life for like a half hour. Oh, that's, yeah. An hour. I just moved to outpatient too. And I see, I did residential inpatient for almost five years. Same. So Same. it's like, dude. <laughs> fuck, bro. Yeah, you do. I got so tired of 24 7 client interaction. And like, so yeah. tired of it. Yeah, it was, it, you know, you're when you're in, in residential, like you're working with the clients when they're not being putting on the show for the counselors. You're with them when they're being real who they really 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 are and it's difficult man that oh yeah well you did the tech yeah you did the tech yeah so you really saw it yeah i did the yeah yeah dude but you know at the end of the day man and i and i stress this in my groups a lot is like gratitude 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 um and it's my, it's like my little stick line, whatever you want to call it. But like, if gratitude's in my working in my life and I am, am practicing gratitude and I remind myself of this every day, it's like, if I'm getting up and I have to do something, like I have to make my bed, I have to take a shower, I have to go do that, or I got to do this, I got to get this done. Like, I'm a miserable son of a bitch. It's right. not my higher power i'm not turning it over i'm not saying that third step prayer i'm not i'm not doing the things that i need to do to to be there and be present so like if my have to's and got to's turn into get to's like i get to go to work i get to go to the gym i get to go to concerts i get to be there and be present for my clients when they're at the worst point in their life or they've been with us for a little while and like they're starting to figure it out. I get to be there and be present for that. And of course you got your bad apples and shit, but that's part of the job. You just learn to roll with it. It's like, they said, like we, we were talking today, like, you know, you kind of got to learn to dance with the struggle instead of wrestle with the struggle. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That's, uh, (laughs) that's a skill for sure. It is. And and I get to learn like I'm a Monday through Friday guy, dude. I clock out on Friday and I don't go back until Monday. So I get to completely unplug yep. for the for two days out of the week. You know, I, I, we make our own schedules. So like, you know, some days I work longer days, like Thursdays is a 10 hour day. And it's not that bad because it's mostly clinical meetings and a handful of individuals and a group an hour OP group. Yeah. But you know, it's a lot of prayer too, man. A lot of oh, higher yeah. power type stuff. Like, if it wasn't for that, like, I, you know, I don't know. I would have lost my sanity a long time ago. So, yes, uh, grounding techniques to ground myself in the present, to be present in the moment. Like, 
being present for group like iops is a haul dude that's three hours you gotta you gotta fill with clients yeah yeah dude <laughs> so it's like okay what are we working on tonight and i yeah. get some really cool ideas and 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 we and we roll with it and we have fun with it and like I'll, I try to, I'll send you some group ideas we can we can trade dude, i would love that i would i would i would totally be down for I, that. I have tons of i have all my stuff on like a thumb drive so i can definitely do that but dude uh thanks so much for telling your story man and i uh i'm very much looking forward to meeting you in person now this will be a couple cool, weeks man yeah a couple, couple weeks, weeks dude we'll be there yeah. we'll be doing meetings before the show and and like check-ins throughout once i get a map of like the layout i'm gonna put it up in the in the group like sober checkpoint at one o'clock in the afternoon four o'clock in the afternoon this is where i'll be at at this time for like 15 20 minutes meet me there and we'll talk about it and like oh nice yeah. so yeah right I'm, on, I'm bro. You, bro yeah so, dude uh yeah, thanks for having me on a hundred percent uh send me an email church and other drugs at gmail.com patreon.com slash church and other drugs if you want to support the show thank you so so much to the people that uh are supporting it seriously is, is getting me through some tough times and storefrontier.com slash church and other drugs just made a new johnny cash t-shirt that i think's awesome <laughs> so go check it out yeah let's do it again sometime oh for sure bro all right.